Well, not too long ago, I watched a show, which I don't normally do, on Netflix called The Hunt. And it was, uh, it, it's a documentary from the creators of planet Earth that por- uh, documents the uh, predator-prey chase. And in one scene, there's a herd of wildebeest surrounding a lake, and this crocodile mimicking a log floats slowly towards it, towards the shore, and launches up out of the water to attack. In another scene, a tubby sea lion's kind of just lounging on a broken sheet of ice in the Arctic sun while a polar bear's weaving his way through the broken ice, swimming, uh, makes his way towards the tubby sea lion, lunges up out of the water onto the sheet of ice to attack. There's another scene of a, of a much quicker, more nimble rabbit chasing, being chased by a pack of wolves who, through teamwork, strategy, and stamina, are able to close in on the rabbit. As you're watching scene after scene of this unfold, um, it, gets, it gets tiring. It reminded me of Wiley e. Coyote and the Roadrunner, just this never-ending pursuit. And you feel for these animals, uh, not just, obviously, the prey. You know, you can always root for them. But even the predators, they're just trying to eke out another week of life and see their young reach adulthood. It was, it was, it's, it's a portrayal of the groaning of creation that Paul talks about in Romans. And as I'm watching all of this, it dawns on me that this is actually not far off from our own world. Nations fight against nations. Genocide's a problem. Cyber bullies harass the weak online. Sexual predators uh, prey upon the powerless. Even in my world of education, I've spent, I mentioned this, I think, last time, I've spent the last eight years serving in the school setting. And all too often, schools, think of, think of education, think of the world, the world as being just a clump of scarce resources that students must fight and claw to acquire, and that fight begins in school, where students must learn how to conquer the curriculum, conquer their classmates, move to the head of the class, and get their uh, acceptance to college where they can go on, get a college degree, and then go get a piece of the world's pie for themselves. And that's the whole purpose of life. Sin has ravaged our world, and it makes us feel as though our experience is nothing more than a power struggle, a life and death struggle. Now, last week we looked at creation, and we know from last week, it wasn't always this way. Then in Genesis chapter 1, God creates a a, a good world, a world that all of it interlocks harmoniously, and there's flourishing in that world because all of the world is tethered to the lordship of God Almighty. In Genesis chapter 3, that unravels. Because God's steward kings on earth, his representatives on earth, rebel against him. They disobey, they eat the fruit, and bring about an unraveling of all of that harmony that existed. In chapter 4 of of Genesis, we get our first glimpse of life in a fallen world. What life looks like with sin in the picture. And, And as we'll see, the world is entangled in sin. So that's our topic for today, this topic of sin. 
what is life like in a world swirling with sin? I want us to see three things. One, sin's ubiquity. Sin is everywhere. The second thing is sin's insidious potential to destroy everything. So sin's ubiquity, the fact that it's everywhere, it's insidious potential to destroy everything. And finally, sin's death and defeat. So those are three points. Let's read Genesis chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, and we'll read through verse 16. Genesis chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we again come to you in prayer. We need uh, your help to understand your word. And we pray that your spirit would um, pierce us this morning with the power of your word. That you would bring truth to our hearts. But that you would couple that truth with your um, steadfast love, your gentleness that you have towards your people. I pray that you would help me to speak clearly your word and that you would grant me your spirit's power And pray that your spirit would help the congregation as well this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, right off the bat, Adam and Eve begin doing what they were called to do, right? They begin to multiply, to have children. And when Eve gives birth to her firstborn, Cain, she makes this claim that I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And on the surface, it sounds kind of, okay, she's, get, she's, you know, doing her up to God, give God the glory. But that's actually not the best way to read it. She's sort of saying, I did my part, 
God did his part. And here's Cain. And then Abel, the birth of Abel is described. But there's no real commentary given on the birth of Abel. The only thing we know is from his name, which means vapor. Right? He's just, just a vapor. And that's what his life would be. So these are the two characters of the story. One, the firstborn, Cain, and then a vapor named Abel. And hovering in the background to this is Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, this, this clue in the midst of the curse that God would provide someone coming from Eve's line, uh, uh, in particular a male, that would crush the head of the serpent. And so the question in this text, the, the, the background, the question is, is it going to be one of these children? Is it going to be Cain? Is it going to be Abel that will crush the serpent? Now, just like Adam and Eve were fulfilling their part of the cultural mandate, so are Cain and Abel, right? Cain is, is working the ground, and Abel is a rancher, keeping flocks. Um, they're doing precisely what God commanded them to do before sin entered the picture. In other words, sin has not derailed humanity's charge upon creation, but it's, it's twisted it, right? The work that you do in whatever jobs you have is, is, a, is a good thing, right? It's something we were called to do in this cultural mandate. The reason it's toil, the reason it's fraught with feelings of futility and sometimes like real futility, it's because of the fall. It's broken, but it's, it's a good thing. It's a good activity for humans to participate in. And then the fruit of their labor they bring as offerings to the Lord. And Cain's offering, we learn, is is not accepted. Abel's is, which creates in Cain this cauldron of anger brewing in him. Which brings us to the first point, the ubiquity of sin. Sin is everywhere. For us in the church, it's easy to think that like sin is out there. Um, that at least the worst, we may have a few pet sins that we struggle with here in the church, but the really bad stuff is out there in the world. What this uh, text is suggests is that's not so fast, right? The, the context for this horrible sin is a community of worshipers, right? They're worshiping the Lord. And not only are they a community of worshipers that are, have misdirected worship, but they're worshiping not a pagan deity, but the triune God, right? They're, they're, they're directing their offering and their worship to the one true living God. And yet they're at odds with one another. Now, the difference, it's subtle, the difference between their offerings. But you see it in verses 3 and 4. Cain brings to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, just sort of a general grain, cereal, whatever the fruit of the ground is. But Abel brings the firstborn of his flock, right? And their fat portions, the best part, the choicest. Do you see the difference? Cain offers just a general portion of of, of what he has to offer. Abel, on the other hand, offers the best, the firstborn of his flock, as well as the fat portions, the choicest, right? Abel gives out of his gross earnings. Cain gives out of his net, Abel gives joyfully, Cain gives reluctantly. Charles Spurgeon gives this wonderful uh, example of the the carrot farmer. 
There's this carrot farmer, and he's a part of this kingdom, and he has this incredible carrot harvest. And he takes the biggest, fattest, oranges, sweetest carrot to the king of the land to present to him as a, as a gift to the king. And so he presents it to the king, and the king is just blown away at the generosity of, of the carrot farmer. He says, good carrot farmer, because of your generosity to me, I'm going to put you in charge of all my farmland. Everything, every, every piece of farmland is yours, and you have all the resources you need at your disposal to take good care of that. Because you were, you were responsible with this carrot farm, you can be responsible for the whole thing. Watching all of this unfold is the horse keeper, one of the king's servants. And he watches these things. He, the guy gives him a carrot, and he gets all the farmland. What will I get if I give him the best horse I have? So he goes down to the stables, and he finds the best horse that he has available, and he presents the horse in kind of a you know, ceremonial fashion to the king. And the king says, thanks, on your way. He sort of awkwardly lingers there, the horse keeper, and the king, king realizes what's going on, and he says, the carrot farmer gave me the carrot. You were giving yourself the horse. So Abel is the carrot farmer. Cain is the horse keeper. And it's frightening because we can be coming here to this place right here with the motive of the horse keeper. There's a, there's a passage in the book of Samuel that's always sort of perplexed me and caused a little fear. Actually, not a little, a lot of fear in my soul. And it's the story described in 2 Samuel where God, where, where, where the Israelites are bringing, under David's leadership, are bringing the Ark of the Covenant from the land of the Philistines back to Jerusalem. And there's celebration, there's music, there's dancing, there's singing. And then one of the ox cart, one of the oxen that's pulling this ox cart that has the Ark on it, the oxen stumbles, the Ark begins to slide off, and the priest, Uzzah, reaches his arm out to stop the ark from falling, right? It's good. I mean, any, any one of us probably would have done the same. And he's struck dead right there on the spot. The story puts it really bluntly. God struck him down. I mean, Uzzah's just trying to help, right? And yet, there are clues that Uzzah has made a career, this priest has made a career out of control. For starters, there's the ox cart. The, 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 the priests were given strict commands on how to transport the ark, and it was not by ox cart. The ox cart was a, ox cart was a Philistine uh, development. It was sort of a, it was, it was a little technological improvement. It was a shortcut, and Uzzah was, was supervising that, that approach. Eugene Peterson, writing about this, says this regarding Uzzah, this, this priest who struck dead. He says, Uzzah's the person who has God in a box and officiously assumes responsibility for keeping him safe from the mud and dust of the world. Men and women who take it upon themselves to protect God from the vulgarity of sinners and the ignorance of commoners keep showing up in religious precincts. We can guess that Uzzah's reflexive act, reaching out to study the ark as the oxen stumbled, wasn't the mistake of a moment. It was a piece of his lifelong obsession with managing the ark. Are we, are we here to manage, the, manage God and others? Is that why we're offering up this hour of worship on Sunday? This is, what, this is why P, Eugene Peterson also says this. 
Sometimes I think all religious sites should be posted with signs reading, Beware the God. The places and occasions that people gather to attend to God are dangerous. They're glorious places and occasions, true, but they're also dangerous. Danger signs should be conspicuously placed as they are at nuclear power stations. Religion is the death of some people. Like Uzzah, Cain was religious from the outside. And, and actually, here's what's frightening. He and Abel, from, from the outside, looked probably no different. But underneath, Cain was a horse keeper who was caref- carefully leveraging his religious activity in order to control God and his brother. And it's so dangerous. This is why Jesus reserved his strongest critique for the religious of his community, the most religious of his community. This setting here can be the context for such great sin. And oftentimes some of the nastiest treatment um, that people experience comes in church settings, in places of worship. So how do we avoid seeking to leverage God and others for our own purposes of control and self-sovereignty, like Uzzah did, and Cain, and so many others in, in the scriptures? During G.K. Chesterton's life, uh, the the London Times put out a a question to England, asking them, they invited letters, responding to the question, what's wrong with the world? So G.K. replied, and he said, dear editor, I am, period, sincerely yours, G.K. We we have to have that attitude. The, the The fundamental problem with the world is not others, It's not out there, it's in here. Over the course of Paul's ministry, he puts his own sin in increasingly grave terms and finally stating at the end of it, towards the end of his letter writing, I am the chief of all sinners. So this is how ubiquitous sin is. It's everywhere. Cain's anger, pregnant with fratricide, as we're going to see in just a moment, rises up in the context of worship. God sees anger in this, and he enters into a conversation, which brings us to the second point, the insidious potential of sin to destroy everything. God sees Cain's countenance and asks, why are you so angry? And then he gives us this haunting picture of sin. He says, God says in verse 7, sin is crouching at the door, Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. We knew some some folks that were missionaries in South America. And they had a story uh, when they were there. They they had a young child, like a three-year-old. They lived in the jungle in a little hut type thing in, in in the middle of the jungle. And they step outside and they look and their child is playing under a tree just a few uh, yards from their front door and coiled above the child, hanging down in a position to strike, is this viper. And so the the mom says, in a calm fashion, son, you you need to come in. Not to scare the snake, not to scare the child. And this child comes in. As an aside, this illustration was given as an example of why first-time obedience is important. (laughs) Take note, kids. Um, 
But that's, that's, that's us right there. That's a picture uh, of where we stand and where sin is in our lives. That's what God's saying, that, that we're that little child, that sin is like that snake in our lives. It crouches. I don't know if you, you've maybe seen an animal crouch. My pet does it every once in a while. They, get, they sort of hunch up and get small, right? They're getting small. And why do they do that? They're, they're trying to conceal the threat that they pose. They shrink. And that's what sin does. It shrinks. It, it, it looks smaller. It looks safer than it is. But make no mistake, it's lethal. In the early 2000s, uh, Timothy Treadwell, also known as the grizzly man, spent summers living amongst grizzly bears in, in Alaska. I mean, and there's footage of that. He, there's footage of him uh, swimming with these bears, running around, play, like frolicking through Alaskan prairie with the grizzlies, sleeping, spending the night in, in a tent, pitching his tent with the grizzlies. And they, this, there's a documentary that describes all this, but the, the, the community, the surrounding community knew about the grizzly man. There were two schools of thought that took shape around him. One said, this guy's crazy. You don't live with bears. Like, he's going to die sooner or later. There's another school of thought that said, I think this is beautiful. He loves grizzlies. He has some sort of unique connection with the bears. And I think it's beautiful that he's living amongst them. Well, eventually... The bears uh, killed the grizzly man. And, and you may think, well, yeah, of course. I mean, like, that, he had it coming, right? But when it comes to how we treat sin, we are Timothy Treadwell, the grizzly man. We cozy up to it. We splash around with it. We play with it. We live contently with it, not realizing that we're playing with a grizzly. And one day... It will bite our heads off. And not only that, it will feast upon everything surrounding us. It ripples. Its effects ripple beyond us. And not only does sin crouch, but it also entices. Cornelius Plantinga says that evil has to spend a lot on makeup. Right? Because if we, because if we saw sin for what it is, we would run and hide in the other direction. But that's not what we do. There's an allure to it. It hides, it crouches, sin puckers for us. It does all sorts of things to, to draw us in, and then it will destroy us. Look at what the seeds of, of anger do in Cain's life. It crouches, and then it becomes this beast that leads Cain to kill his own brother, Abel. Right? And it's a cold-blooded act. Look, look at his response to, to, the, to God's inquiry on this. Am I my brother's keeper? It's a foolish response, showing no regard for God and his image-bearer, Abel. So Cain becomes cursed and a wanderer. So, so there's sin, its ubiquity, and its insidious potential to destroy. But how do we deal with it? How do we defeat it? Once and for all. God says we must master it, but how do we do that? Is there even hope that we can overcome it? Or are we like the three-year-old sitting under the viper and we're just sort of susceptible uh, to it, knowing at some point it's just going to strike? What becomes clear over the course of the Old Testament is that sin 
masters us. Right? And so what's our hope? We get a clue in verse 10. It says there that Abel's blood cries up the injustice that Cain has done. And as the scriptures unfold, we see injustice after injustice. In other words, Genesis 4 is not an anomaly. It's the new norm of life in a fallen world. This is what a sinful world looks like. And as the chapters of Genesis unfold and as the books of the Old Testament unfold, we realize that we need a deliverer, that we cannot help ourselves. And we have one in Christ. Now, on the surface, it looks like a repeat of this passage here, this Cain episode, right? Jesus comes in, in, in the flesh. He enters among us. He dwells with us. And he offers not just a single offering that's pleasing to the Lord, but his whole life is a perfect living sacrifice, perfect offering to the Lord. And his brothers hate him for it. His own people, the religious leaders, they hate him and they plot and they scheme and they wait until they have their moment to kill him. And that certainly happened. But seen from a, from a higher plane, things looked a bit different. Jesus, the Lion of Judah, comes into the world with a purpose. To, put, to turn the great predator of sin into prey. And he chases it. And it runs from his presence. He touches lepers who have, because of sin, they have these awful diseases. And when he touches them, the leprosy doesn't come to him, right? But it, run, it flees him, and the person is healed. Demons uh, shudder at his presence, and he puts them on the run. They, they, they flee from his presence, only because of his mercy, because he doesn't strike them dead immediately. And he chases sin all the way to the cross, where he's crucified, he pours himself out, his blood out for us. And Hebrews 12, chapter 24 says that like Abel's blood spoke to God, Jesus' blood speaks as well up to God. But it speaks a better word. It speaks the word that says, Father, forgive them. And it does. His death crushed sin. It crushed its power over us so that with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can master it. Now, if Jesus' blood has the power to save us from uh, the penalty of sin, the catechism, our catechism, the Westminster says that our justification is an act of God's free grace. It's an act of God. It's, it's given. It's received. And we're saved from the penalty of sin. However, there is a power of sin that's at work in us. And the work of sanctification is us, and the catechism says regarding sanctification, it's a work of God's grace that that we somehow participate. To uh, Ed's reference to Owen earlier, and it's on the front of your, your bulletin. You know, if we're not killing sin, to paraphrase John Owen's, It's killing us. So we have this very real fight with sin. And it's tiring. It's exhausting, this fight. But 
God gives us grace in the fight in the form of this meal, which nourishes us as we have this fight with sin. And it's a meal for those who have placed their faith in Christ and have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's also a meal for those who can confess this confession of faith found in your order of worship from Colossians chapter 1. Let's confess it together. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Before we partake of this meal, let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that apart from you, um, sin is a predator that would otherwise destroy us. And yet you have graciously stepped in between us and that great enemy, and you've, you've killed it, you've crushed it. But we still confess that it has a, it has a power, it has an allure to us, and we need, we need your ongoing help. We need your spirit to um, help Strengthen us as we battle this enemy of sin, as, as we're healed and saved from its power in our lives. And so we ask that your spirit would take these common elements and that by your spirit's power, you might reinforce, solidify, strengthen our faith in Christ so that we might be able to better fight sin. We also expect and hope and pray that you would meet us during this meal, that we, would, that we would have communion with you, Jesus, and communion with one another as we partake together as a body. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.